welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is, and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible, and references will be given after the stories. This week, I'm looking at the Keddie Cabin murders. These murders are gruesome, and I will be going over injuries sustained. You know the drill by now. If it's going to upset you, mark this episode as played and skip it. Your safety comes first. In 1979, Glenna Sharp who went by Sue, left her abusive husband. She took her five children from Connecticut and went to Quincy, California. Initially, the family rented a trailer home owned by Sue's brother. They found it too small for the six of them and eventually they found a larger home in Keddie, California in September 1980. Keddy itself was once a bustling town with a busy railroad terminal. Many of the residents left though, causing the town to fall into disrepair when the terminal closed. Later, the town was promoted as a resort town, advertising camping, hiking and other outdoor activities. This reinvention attempt failed, however. This failure spurred Gary Molloth to renovate and rent out his cabins as long-term rentals for low-income families. Sue rented one of these cabins, allowing the family to have more room. Sue's neighbours described her as a loner and she only made one friend in the community. She had begun to attend business classes at Feather River Community College and was described as a good student who had worked hard to maintain high grades. It was also confirmed that she had no criminal record and that local authorities didn't know of her. The cabin they had moved into only had two bedrooms, but they converted the basement into a third one. The only way into the basement was from an exterior door, so Sue often kept the back door unlocked so that her son could enter the house at any time. The community seemed quite safe, so it makes sense that she wouldn't worry about it at all. Things were going well for Sue and her family. There was a lot of gossip about her, but she was fiercely private, so it was mostly speculative. Sue didn't seem to care and worked hard to create a good life for her kids. In April 1981, John, Sue's eldest son, had gone out to Quincy to see his friend Dana. Sue's daughters, Sheila and Tina, went to a neighbour's cabin and her younger sons, Ricky and Greg, stayed home with Sue. Their friend, Justin, had come over. 
All three boys spent most of the day in the garden before having a sleepover. Tina returned to the cabin that night and Sheila stayed at the neighbours. John and Dana also planned to return to the cabin later, but nobody knows what time they got back. Both boys were spotted between half past nine and 10 p.m. attempting to hitchhike back home from Quincy. The actual events of the night are unknown, but the night itself seemed quiet for most of Keddie. A neighbour heard a dog barking over near Sue's cabin at some point, and another neighbour said that their cats had been in and out of the house all night when they usually slept. Another resident woke up between 1 and 2 a.m., hearing something that sounded like groaning. But everyone who heard something went back to sleep. None of the residents of Keddie noticed anything that caused enough of a concern to go and find out what was happening. The next morning, Sheila returned to the cabin to change into her church clothes. She opened the door to a gruesome scene. John was lying face up on the floor and Dana was lying face down. Both were covered in blood and had been bound by the ankles. There was a yellow blanket in the room covering something that Sheila thought was another body. She left the scene quickly, returning to the neighbor's house. The Seabolt family, who had lived next door, ran to the lodge on the resort and spoke to the co-owner, Jan Albin. Albin phoned the police. Whilst waiting for the police, Sheila remembered that her brothers were in the cabin with Justin. When the Seabolts returned to the cabin with Sheila, they found the boys unharmed in the boys' room. They had managed to sleep through the whole ordeal and Sheila and the Seabolts helped them out the window. Police Deputy Hank Clement got to the scene first. All three of the victims had been bound with electrical cables before they were bludgeoned to death with a claw hammer. Sue and John had also been stabbed multiple times and also had their throats cut. Sue had sustained even more injuries with defensive wounds showing on her arms and potentially bludgeoned with the butt of a rifle. When they removed the blanket from Sue's body, they found that she was nude from the waist down and her underwear had been stuffed into her mouth. An autopsy was performed on Dana and it was discovered that he had been manually strangled. When the investigators searched the room, they discovered that there was blood everywhere and not just on the floor or the victims. It was found on the wallpaper, the ceiling, in one of the bedrooms, on the furniture in the living room, on the bedroom doors and on the handrails outside the back door. The bottom of Sue's feet and the bottom of both Dana and John's shoes were also covered in blood, suggesting that they had been mobile during the attack. Near the bodies, 
a knife was found. It had clearly been used to perpetrate the stabbings, but had been used with such a force that the blade had bent. The attack had been violent and savage, and almost nobody had heard anything. After a sweep of the cabin, it was discovered that Tina was missing. She wanted to stay at the Seabolts the night before, but Sue had told her to come home. A search was conducted to find Tina, but she wasn't found. The police put out an all points bulletin, or APB, to Lassen, Butt, Sierra Counties and Reno, asking them to look for Tina. This APB also asked them to check hospitals to see if anyone with knife injuries had been admitted in the last 48 hours. The police suspected that with the intensity of the attack, the perpetrator would have likely been hurt themselves in the process. When the boys who were in the bedroom were interviewed, both Rick and Greg said that they had slept through the whole thing. Justin, their friend who was staying over, said that he wasn't sure. He had been having dreams since the murders, where he remembered seeing two men in the living room of the cabin, with one holding a knife and a hammer, and said that Sue had been speaking to the men when John and Dana returned home, causing the conversation to get violent. Suspects were put together and interviewed. One of the suspects had disappeared from Keddie shortly after the murders, but was later found in Oregon. He submitted a polygraph examination, which cleared him of the crime. That lead was a dead end, and other suspects just became theories. The main suspect was a man named Martin Smart. Smart was Justin's stepfather, he had been interviewed and mentioned that he had lost his hammer recently. He said that he and his wife, Marilyn, had entertained a friend, Bo Bobied. Martin and Bo went to a local bar and had a few drinks. On the way, they had stopped by Sue's cabin to see if she wanted to join them, and she had refused. The pair left for the bar where Martin complained about the music that was playing. They left shortly after and returned to Martin's cabin. Marilyn just watched television and went to bed. Martin phoned the bar's manager, still angry about the music. Then he and Bo went back to the bar. Police also interviewed Marilyn she contradicted the story, saying that she had no idea where Martin was because she'd been asleep the whole time. She told investigators that they had separated the day after the murders because he was short-tempered and abusive. Marilyn and Martin had been taking the same business course as Sue and Marilyn revealed that Sue had been counselling her on leaving her husband. Marilyn also revealed that Martin hated John 
and would call him a punk. She told the police that she had seen Martin burning something in the fireplace. She didn't know what it was and Martin never revealed it. The police never managed to compile a case against Martin and Bo for some reason. With the bungling of the investigation causing a lack of leads, the case went cold until 1984. A hunter stumbled across a skull near Feather Falls, 50 miles away from Keddy. Around this time, the Butt County Sheriff's Office received a call asking whether they thought about the murders in the cabin and the 12 year old girl who had gone missing. The person who made the call was never identified. The remains that had been found were sent to a lab for analysis and identification. Dental records came back as Tina Sharp. According to the medical examiner, Tina had died after November 1981, which was six months after the murders. The advanced decomposition of the remains meant that no cause of death could be determined, but it's assumed that she was murdered. Along with her remains, they found a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of Levi's missing one of the back pockets and an empty surgical tape dispenser. It's unknown why Tina was kept alive for so long after the initial murders. Even with Tina's discovery, the police had no leads and the case went cold. There was a lot of evidence, but none of it pointed in a specific direction. In 2004, the cabin got demolished. The case was looked at again in 2013. The sealed case files had been untouched for a while before a new sheriff decided to reopen the case. Inside the files, the anonymous phone calls tape was discovered. It had been placed in an evidence bag and not listened to. A letter that had been written to Marilyn Smart by Martin Smart was also found in the files. The letter said, I've paid the price for your love and now I've bought it with four lives and you tell me we're through. Great. In 2016, a hammer was found in a dried up pond in Keddy. This hammer is believed to be the one that Martin said was missing. A knife was found with the hammer. Later in the year, an anonymous counsellor at the Veterans Administration in Reno came forward with information that implicated Martin. According to the counsellor, Martin had been a patient several weeks after the murders and had confessed that he was the murderer. He claimed to want to clear his conscience, admitting to killing Sue and Tina but said he had nothing to do with the death of the boys. When further pressed, Martin said that he had incapacitated Tina and had to kill her later because she was a witness. 
he was asked what his motivation was and he claimed that he believed Sue was the reason that Marilyn wanted a divorce. These allegations were dismissed as hearsay by the Department of Justice. That didn't matter though, because Martin Smart had died in 2000 from cancer. To this day, nobody knows what happened in that cabin, nor do they know who the perpetrators were. With the story out of the way, let's look at the suspects and theories. An early theory of the case was that whoever had picked John and Dana up from Quincy had perpetrated the murders. The scenario would have been that after dropping John and Dana off, they forced their way into the cabin or had maybe been invited in by the boys, causing the murders. The other half of that theory is that the murders had begun before John and Dana got there and they just walked into a situation that cost them their lives. Both of these are plausible, but leave the perpetrator as an unknown. The boys had been to a party where drugs were being used, so witnesses refrained from coming forward to identify the drivers. There were reports of a pair of men acting strangely at the party, but those men were never identified. One theory suggests that the murders were the result of a cult practice. It was ruled out early on in the investigation, but revisited in 1996. That was when Robert Joseph Silveria Jr was looked at as a suspect. He had lived in the area during the 80s and was known to be courteous and decorated envelopes at his work. In 1996, he was arrested and suspected of 17 murders. He had been a drifter for 15 years, accused of killing other drifters he came into contact with. He confessed to 28 murders including the murders in the Keddy cabin. He would be cleared later on, due to him being in custody for Grand Theft Auto at the time. The main suspects in the case were Martin Smart and Bo Bobede. At the time of the murders, Keddy had a problem with drugs, and it was believed that Martin was integral to that. He had gone to the bar on the night of the murders in a three-piece suit, as if he was trying to draw attention to himself. It was reported that he and Bo had been acting strangely that night, and both had criminal records. Bo was believed to have ties to organised crime in Chicago too. It was said that prior to the murders, Sue had been counselling Martin's wife, Marilyn, about leaving her husband. At the same time, there had been rumours that Sue and Martin had been having an affair. It's possible that Martin learned of Sue's counselling and wanted to nip it in the bud. He was known to be a jealous and possessive man 
and used that as his motive. Some speculated that Martin and Bo weren't the only perpetrators, and that others from Keddy had a hand to play in the murders. This would have meant that Sue was the only target, and John and Dana had just been caught up in it. Former Sheriff Greg Hagwood believes that Tina was central to the murders. He believes that it doesn't make sense for the other three victims to have been left in the house whilst Tina was kidnapped and disposed of later. Hagwood believes that there is something about Tina that meant she couldn't be left in the house and that she had to be taken to cover it up. Whoever killed the people inside the Keddie cabin are still at large. All of the major suspects have died, but three children were left without their mother or siblings. The police are determined to find out who perpetrated the crime and continue to look into leads and evidence in the hopes of one day finding out who the murderers were. The story and theories from this episode came from an ATI article called The Keddie Cabin Murders Inside the Grizzly Quadruple Homicide That Still Haunts California. A Medium article called The Keddie Cabin Murders, One of the Country's Leading Unsolved Crimes. A Crime and Investigation article called The Keddie Cabin Murders, California's Infamous Quadruple Homicide and a grunge article called The Mystery Behind the Keddy Cabin Murders Explained. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, links to those and other ways to listen are in the episode description under my link tree. You can currently find me on Facebook and Instagram. Patreon is getting an upload of one of the transcripts each week as part of the £3 tier. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and, as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. I do have an email set up on the link tree, but it doesn't open up a new email so that's in the description of the episode too. Send me your spooky stories, unexplained events and anything else you want me to read out. Or, if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said, let me know and I'll address them as soon as I see the email. The next Creature feature will be out on Saturday, and next week's episode comes out on August 24th, so hold on until then. (laughs) 